I'm going to start with the question, what is God? God is a spirit who in and of himself is infinite in being, glory, blessedness, and perfection. He is all-sufficient, eternal, unchangeable, beyond our full understanding, present everywhere, almighty, knowing everything, completely wise, completely holy, completely just, completely merciful and gracious, patient and overflowing with goodness and truth. Well, good morning to you all, and I'm um, glad to be here. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Stuart Balaban, and I will be teaching um, for the next three weeks on the topic of theology proper, if you guys see on your hand out there. Um, and what I just read was question seven of the Westminster Larger Catechism. I wanted to kind of start with that to, to prime the, the pump, uh, per se, as we look at this topic. Um, and just overall, the elders here at Calvary Bible Church have, um, have a rotation of topics that we teach in Sunday school. And they fall into four general categories. Uh, there are church history, uh, going through a book of the Bible, uh, Christian living, and then theology. If you look back over the past year, uh, some of the Sunday school lessons we had Rod, the last book was taught was um, Jeremiah. Fred Perry taught about uh, financial stewardship as it relates to Christian or uh, relates to giving. Uh, Jason Cruz taught on Christian liberties, and Jeremy has spent the past couple of weeks walking us through Romans uh, 12 through 16, what it means to be transformed and live sacrificially. Uh, Craig Preston taught um, last on the Holy Spirit, so that was pneumatology was our last um, theology topic. That was back in February of 2022. Uh, and Damon taught on the, the history of the early church. And, and if you want to go back and look at all of these lessons are found on our, um, the church app or on a podcast to go back and listen to those. Um, and looking ahead, um, the next book of the Bible that Rod will be teaching will be Ezekiel. Um, if... Um, and if you want to bring that around sooner, if someone wants to, to step in and lead the seven- and eight-year-old Sunday school, Rod will be able to teach the book on Ezekiel even sooner. Uh, and also, if, if there's anyone, uh, any man here listening uh, that wants to teach on the, the history of church, you can talk to Rod about that. Uh, otherwise, Damon Cup or even Matt Scheffler uh, from Christ Fellowship Church would, would be willing to teach that. Those are the, the two guys who normally teach on church history and really enjoy that. Um, just overall, Sunday school in general is um, what the elders have put in place to, to bring about um, in Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, talking about uh, equipping the, the, the church for ministry and building up the body of Christ. So that's what we're trying to do here today. Before we start, let's pray. Blessed Father, we're so grateful to get to be here together, to fellowship with other believers, Lord, and to be instructed in your word. I pray that you'd be speaking through me today, Lord, that I would be um, just speaking your words, that you would protect us from any error, Lord, and that we, the church here would be encouraged and built up in the fact that you are a God who, who is knowable. I pray that you'd bless this time. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so this three-week study... We'll be working on, they're focusing on the theology proper, as I mentioned earlier, and I just wanted to kind of start talking about what theology is or maybe what theology is not. Um, growing up, uh, during my early teen years, I had a, a wrong view of theology. I kind of thought it centered around uh, revelation. You know, when would Jesus come back? 
you know, is uh, who would get taken up in a rapture? When would the rapture happen? Uh, is a thousand years mentioned in Revelation um, literal or figurative? You know, it was, I thought theology was the, for the study of the elders or the super spiritual um, for those who were in academics, not for the, for the lay person of the church. Um, early on, I, didn't, I thought it, it would take too much time uh, to study Scripture and to see what God's Word said about um, God's design for the church, uh, what, how the Holy Spirit works, or what the Bible said about man. I mean, I did have a basic understanding that God is a holy God, that I was a sinner, and that Jesus died for me, but that's about the depth of my spirituality. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't very deep. Um, now, I'm telling you all this because theology matters. Uh, how you, or what you believe about God and Scripture and all of the rest will influence how you live your Christian life. Having a limited knowledge of God and of his words lead to weak, floundering Christians who are like little children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, as Paul said in Ephesians 4. But our desire is that you would grow in maturity, and so that's what we're teaching here today. Theology is a study of God. The word theology is from two Greek words, theos, meaning God, and logos, meaning word. It's the words of God, or we can say the, a study of God. And it does take considerable time and effort to read and study Scripture in such a way where the Holy Spirit illuminates that truth and gives us discernment for application in our daily lives. The idea of this work shouldn't turn us away from study, like it did me early on, but rather as believers, uh, we should all strive for this. We should strive to know God more, strive to be studying his word so that we might know him and worship him. Here at Calvary, I want you guys, and I know that's the desire of the elders is to be like the Bereans in Acts 17, who when they received the word, they received it with eagerness, and then they examined the scriptures daily uh, to see what was being, if what was being taught was true. Like on a daily basis, they would filter uh, what they heard and what was being taught through Scripture. And what they had at the time was just the Old Testament. And we are blessed now to have the full canon of Scripture in the Old and the New Testament to see that. Um, and we find we need it. Um, so let me challenge you to that same level of dedication. So we are inundated with messages from the world all around us. Um, not just messages from the world, but also we have access to, to thousands of, of sermons from preachers all over. Um, we can hear those online, listen to podcasts, and, and if we're not careful to study what Scripture says and, and filter what, uh, what we're hearing through Scripture, um, then you can be easily led astray. And this is something that I need to constantly remind myself of. Now, systematic theology, so we're getting a little bit, so that's theology, but systematic theology in general terms, is taking uh, truths found in Scripture and putting them in a systematic order. And not done chronologically, um, but um, this is done looking at the whole of Scripture, and it builds doctrines found on the truth uh, in Scripture, and then we build a doctrines found on that. Truths come from the Old and the New Testament. I think on your handout, I have the, the Wayne Grudem's definition of systematic theology is Systematic theology is a study that answers the question, what does a Bible teach us today about any given topic? And if you open up a systematic theology book, uh, you'll find like about 10 central doctrines. 
And while they aren't listed in a hierarchical form, from the greatest to the least, you'll often either find bibliology, the study of God's word, and theology proper, the study of God, as as the first. And these are the the central pillars that hold up all the rest. A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, said, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So this is why we study theology And this is why we'll be looking at theology proper over the next three weeks. Although I do admit that three weeks is not nearly enough time to cover this topic fully, um, but I'll do my best that I can, and I just uh, pray that we would all benefit and grow from this. You see, having a right concept and knowledge of God is foundational to systematic theology as well as our Christian lives and how we live them out. You must have a correct and biblical understanding of God Too often, humans try to put God inside a box uh, that we have made and that we can fully comprehend and understand. We have too little a view of God and a much too high view of man. Society wants to bring God down to our level and equate him with objects around us that we have something to worship or even something to control. Rather, we should be like John the Baptist when he has the right mindset. When he says in John chapter 3 about Jesus... He must increase, I must decrease. Another reason uh, we study theology is because we are called in the Great Commission by Jesus to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So if you are able to If you are to be obedient to what Jesus calls you to do here, you need to understand him and his commands, that's scripture, so that you can teach it to others. God is calling you to be a lifelong student of himself and his word so that as you go about your way, you're able to teach others and disciple them. How else can you teach someone to do that unless you know them yourselves? Finally, we study theology and theology proper to have a right understanding of God so that we can truly worship him. All kinds of errors start to creep up and into the church when our view of God is skewed. When the church at large has a faulty or a low view of God, he is not worshipped like he deserves to be. Israel in the Old Testament um, is an example of that. When they stopped paying attention to God and his words, God brought judgment on them. Jeremiah 6 lays this out clearly. Thus says the Lord, Stand by the roads and look, and ask for the ancient paths. Where is the good way? Walk in it, and find rest for your souls. But they said, We will not walk in it. I set watchmen over you, saying, Pay attention to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, We will not pay attention. Therefore hear, O nations, and know, O congregation, what will happen to them. Hear, O earth, and behold, I am bringing disaster upon this people, the fruit of of their devices, because they have not paid attention to my words, and as for my law, they have rejected it. By losing sight of God's word and law, and by rejecting it, they brought judgment upon themselves. They no longer worshiped God or delighted in him, like David did in Psalms 9, when he says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. 
David had a right understanding of God and is praising and worshiping him for who he is. And when we turn our eyes to God and we see him and ponder his work and his love and his sovereignty and his holiness and his existence and his wisdom and his wrath and his justice, our hearts are moved to worship. True theology leads to true doctrine, which leads to true doxology or a true worship of God. And that's our goal here, to get a better understanding of God so that we might truly worship him. With that in mind, let's look at our first point, God's existence. We'll be looking at three different arguments so that we can be convinced of the existence of God. They are God's existence as seen in creation, in scripture, and through the incarnate Son himself. We'll move from the partial and incomplete awareness in creation to the more narrow and complete in Jesus. And so starting out in Psalms 19, if you want to flip there, we'll be, we'll be reading there. Psalms 19, verse 1. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and there are words to the end of the world. This section refers to the general revelation of God and points to his existence in all creation. Verse 1, the sun and the moon and the stars showcase God's work and bears witness to an orderly and a wise creator. How many of you love to look up at, at the sky at night and, and see how many stars you can, you can see, see some planets? You know, maybe even if it's dark enough, you can see the Milky Way. It's amazing to see that. You know, and on the right conditions, depending on where you are, you may be able to see about 5,000 stars with just the human eye. And according to NASA, there's about 100 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy where we're located. That's 100 billion the B. <laughs> and then they also say that there are up to hundreds of billions of galaxies in the universe. Like this is, we don't have to count them, all of them, to, to marvel like David did um, at the work of God in the heavens. Even like the distance between the earth and the sun and the distance between the earth and the moon and their relative sizes is perfect to be able to line up for a lunar or a solar eclipse. Even like the distance between the earth and the moon is such that the, the tides are kept exactly where they're supposed to be and so predictable that we have years worth of a tide charts that we can look at just because God has ordered it in such a way. Even the, the 23 and a half degree tilt of the earth gives us the seasons. I mean, you just have to take me at my word on that because in Texas we only have a, it's a summer and then... A mild spring, yeah, mild winter maybe. <clears throat> but none of this could have happened by chance. You know, none of this came from nothing. And just seeing the harmony and intelligence and all of this and the stars and just the rest of creation, it has to point to a creator outside of it. And even now, look at verse 2. Uh, this revelation of God in creation is constant. It says, day to day, night to night, reveal this knowledge. It never stops. 
we have a constant reminder all around us of the existence of God in creation. Verse 4 tells us the reach of this knowledge. It says all people everywhere throughout history. It, says it goes to all the earth and the end of the worlds. So everyone is witness of God's handiwork in creation. And Paul says a similar thing in Romans chapter 1. It says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. In this, God has given all humans clear evidence of his eternal power and divine nature through his created works. No one can be excused or claim that, that they didn't know that there is a God. He is placed within each of us in an inner sense that God exists. What can be known as plain and as shown by God. And but what happens is in our fallen state, we are blinded by that and even exchange the, the truth that is plainly seen for a lie and we worship the creation rather than the creator. Psalms 14 says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So both in Romans in this chapter here, or in, this, in, in Psalms, they point to an active denial of God and his work and a foolishness that comes um, from being deceived or having a lack of rational thinking. No one can say that they were not aware of God's existence. They are without excuse. Further, in Ecclesiastes 3, God says that God has put eternity in man's heart. Even an, another example from creation for the existence of God is found in Acts 14, 17, where Paul and Barnabas declared to the people in Lystra that they were, who were about to make a sacrifice to them because they thought they were gods, and their response was that, uh, about God, that yet he did not leave himself without witness. witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So they declare that there is evidence of God in the goodness of even the rain and how it causes crops to grow and to bring forth food and gladness. So there is abundant, abundant witness of nature um, to the existence of God. However, not everybody will believe them. But just because they do not believe the evidence and the proof of God's existence doesn't invalidate the argument. It means that those who reject that evidence, they're viewing it wrongly or incorrectly. That was the, existence, or the argument for the, um, from creation for the existence of God. And next we'll look at Scripture and what it says about God's existence. I mean, while we have been using Scripture all along to build our case for God's existence, uh, what else does Scripture reveal? Looking at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis, the first chapter and the first verse, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible starts out just assuming that there is a God and tells us what he's done. There's not a, um, and all throughout the Bible, it has that same assumption that there is a God. If we are to believe that the Bible is true and comes from God, then we can know from the Bible that God truly does exist, and we can know about his character and his work. Psalms 90 Moses is praying to God and says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. See, Scripture is the basis and the key for truly knowing God and that he exists. Without it, we'd be left with an incomplete picture. 
We cannot see all of God through creation alone, although it does provide enough existence, enough evidence of his existence. Uh, scripture, in Scripture, God has revealed himself and is a witness to us of the existence throughout the Old and the New Testament. The author in Hebrews declares that whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And we do that through Jesus. So in Jesus, we, have a, we see God's existence more completely. Um, John states in the first chapter of his account uh, of Jesus that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. See, he uses the same language from, from Genesis talking about the beginning of creation to talk about Jesus and how he is God. In verse 14, he says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In Jesus, we have the exact imprint of, of God and who he is. He is the existence of God right before our eyes. He is the witness of God. And as believers who know God, we get to experience a growing awareness of God's existence in our heart. The Holy Spirit bears witness to that, that we are as children of God, and that Christ dwells in our heart. Um, and it's only when the, God removes the blindness of our hearts and the stubbornness of our hearts can we see that. Now looking at the, we've, we looked at the evidence that there really is a God, the next question we asked is, can we know him? And if how, and if so how, and what impact does it have on our lives? That to be able to know God, it is necessary that he reveal himself to us. The means or the source that he's chosen to do that is, again, through creation, through scripture, and through his son. The extent of the revelation is, is limited, though. It's limited in creation, and it's narrowed and, and completed in scripture and through Jesus. What can be known about God through creation? You know, Paul said that God revealed it to all men everywhere. <clears throat> That God's wrath against the ungodly, his eternal power, and his divine nature are indeed knowable. So these are what, this is what God has revealed in, in creation for us to know. Going back to Romans 1, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and, and unrighteousness of men, of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them, for his individual Invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Again, God has chosen to show himself and made the revelation plain and clear. Now, observing creation, it is clear that God is knowable. But that will not bring anyone to a saving knowledge of God. And I said this before, but it bears repeating. It says that no one can say that I didn't know that there was a God and he existed. In verse 18, it says that they suppress the truth. And in verse 25, it says they exchange the truth for a lie, and their worship is misplaced. And again, to bring this point home that the human wisdom is not enough to come to a saving knowledge of God, uh, in 1 Corinthians 1, uh, reading in, or starting in verse 20, it says, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. 
The world cannot know God through human wisdom alone. God revealed more of himself through what is taught in Scripture. And it's through Scripture that God fully reveals himself so that man can come to a saving knowledge of him. And I'll flip back to verse, or, um, Psalm 19, starting in verse 7. I've been using Psalm 19 and Romans 1, and so these are two good chapters to have bookmarked when we're discussing um, God's revelation. Verse 7, it says that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. There are four more verses after this describing what Scripture is and, and what it does and how it impacts a believer. But in verse 7, it says the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Uh, this wisdom is the application of knowledge that we gain through God's revelation to us in Scripture. And it's through God's revelation to us uh, that we gain an under, a better understanding of his holiness and his wrath and his love, his mercy, our sin, and his atoning work on the cross and so much more. And that leads us to repentance and faith in him. That leads us to truly be able to know him. Talking about the source of our relation of God, which leads to his knowability, it's evident in creation and through scripture and Jesus himself makes the Father known. In talking with his disciples in John 14, in verse 7, Jesus says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father what we can know about God. Or we can know God because we know Jesus. And John writes in 1 John 5 that through Jesus we are given understanding and knowledge of him who is true. And we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true and eternal, the true God and eternal life. The source for the knowledge of God comes through God's revelation of himself in creation, scripture, and Jesus. Um, however, that knowledge that we can, can um, attain of God is limited in, his, in, in its extent. All right, I want to get, think again of the, the expanse of the universe with its billions of galaxies and billions of stars. It says in Isaiah 42 that God holds the ocean in his hand and he measures the heavens with his fingers. In verse 12, I'm sorry, chapter, Isaiah 40, chapter, or verse 12, declares, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighted the balance or the mountains in scales and the hills in balance. The word for span there is a unit of measurement and it's the distance between the thumb and the little finger. It's about nine inches. This is how God measures the expanse of the universe. It's, it's just incredible to think about that <laughs> what seems to us that can go on forever and ever with billions of galaxies and billions of stars, God is, is so infinite that he can measure it with his hand. Like, who is this God? It's so beyond our understanding. That God is infinite and has no beginning and no end. Just listen to these verses here. Psalms 145.3 says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised 
His greatness is unsearchable. Isaiah 55, 9. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. In Romans 11, 33 and 34. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Guys, God's greatness is unsearchable. His ways are higher than our ways and his ways are above scrutiny. He is an infinite God. Not only uh, that and his attributes like his greatness, his thoughts and wisdom and judgments are beyond what we humans have the ability to fully grasp. Like talking to God isn't like talking to the smartest man. Like if I work hard enough or I study enough, I can reach that level. God's God's thoughts aren't just faster than ours or smarter than ours. They're simply not like ours. (laughs) And this is called God's incomprehensibility. So in our desire to want to know God, to know who he is and what he is like, the writers have to use language that is finite to describe what is infinite. We simply don't have the right words to fully describe God. In the, in the book of Ezekiel, uh, which Rod will soon be teaching on, in the first chapter, the heavens were opened, and he had amazing vision, but had difficulty trying to describe it with words, describing a picture of the, that's not of this world. In verse 13 and 14, he says, For the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning, and the living creatures darted to and fro like the appearance of flashing light. He did his best to try to describe what he saw, but had to use the language of like similarity. He had to say it was like something, like this or that. It had appearance of that. And again, John in Revelation had to use the same type of language to describe the infinite God and, the, again, the things that are not of this world. Revelation 1, John said, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstand was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. This amazing picture of Jesus in his glory in heaven, John does his best to describe, but still has to say many, there's many likes uh, to make it understandable. You know, although it does still have the impression of being realistic, it is something that he's trying to describe of an infinite God who is not of this world. And how it, these, these two verses in, in Ezekiel and in Revelations try to show God in the heavenly realms are beyond what we can comprehend right now. Um, without the Spirit illuminating uh, Scripture to us, we cannot understand the majesty of God. Yet we have seen that God does exist and that he is knowable. Um, I'm going to read this passage from um, the, the knowledge of the holy uh, because he said it better than I could when talking about God's incomprehensibility. It says, what is God like? If by that question we mean, what is God like in himself? There is no answer. If we mean, what has God disclosed about himself that the reverent reason can comprehend? 
there is, I believe, an answer both full and satisfying. For while the name of God is secret and his essential nature incomprehensible, then in condescending love has by revelation declared certain things to be true of himself. We call those his attributes. Now we'll be looking at the attributes next week, but it's amazing to think that God has revealed himself to us in such a way that the infinite can be understood to the exact extent that he has designed for the finite to understand. You know, God is both this infinite God who can hold the universe in his hands, measure it with a span, but he's also a personal God. He created the universe, and he said he had man as his crowning achievement. He said man was made in the image of God, and this God interacted with us. So in the beginning, before the fall, God walked with Adam and Eve. There was this close and personal relationship between the cre- uh, creation and the creator. That was broken by the fall, but God still has made a way for us to have a relationship with him through his son, Jesus. He wants us to worship him, to pray to him, to love him, to obey him as he speaks to us through his word and rejoices, um, as we say earlier, his, his love on us. This infinite and incomprehensible God wants to know us and wants to make himself known. We can never fully know or understand any one thing about God. We can know something about God, but never exclusively. R.C. Sproul said, we can apprehend things about God, but we can never fully comprehend God. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says that there are secret things that belong to the Lord. We have to be content with what we can know about God and trust that he has given us everything we need to know about himself that we need. We don't have to look outside of Scripture to try to see who God is, try to try to know Him. We've been given exactly what we need to know about God through Scripture and through His Son. So what is the impact of, of knowing God? The impact that this knowability of the infinite God is that it caused us to be humble in our approach to Him. It's truly an amazing thought. That we, as the, the finite, can get to know an, an eternal and infinite God, and that He would reveal Himself in such a way that we could have a personal relationship with Him. You know, it's only through the work of God that our blindness is overcome, that we can comprehend anything. It's nothing of ourselves. We can't study hard enough. No, no, and, and we could spend a thousand years studying and not reach the, the full extent of God. The fact that we can have this relationship with God and he has revealed himself to us should cause us to be humble as we approach him. We can also never know too much about God. So no matter how long you live, how hard you study, you can never reach a full knowledge of him. Now the thought of never reaching completion should not cause us to become discouraged, dismayed, or apathetic. Rather, this should be a delight and a great joy to us. A passage in Jeremiah 9 speaks to this joy and delight that the Lord gets from those who know him. In 20, um, verse 23, it says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. 
For these things I take delight, declares the Lord. Do you want to delight the Lord? Then seek to know him more and more and grow an understanding of who he is and of his character and how he operates on the earth. We will never run out of things to learn about God. I think even in eternity, we will never exhaust all there is to know about God. See, the verses we read earlier about God's uh, incomprehensibility, those were limited not because of our sinfulness or lack of holiness or anything that comes from us. No, they were limited in the extent because God is infinite. We have all eternity to grow in knowledge, and that will never be exhausted. We shouldn't think of heaven being with God as something that is boring. We as God's people, we want to be with God. We want this, in Psalms 27, the psalmist says, One thing I desire, that I will seek after, to look upon the beauty of God's face. Beholding the beauty of God forever. When you realize that you can spend every day reading and studying scripture, you will find that you have more and more to be thankful for, more reasons to praise and worship God. And this should be an exciting task for us to undertake. I know in the, in the church emails they've been sending out, uh, there are like five different um, like reading plans I encourage you guys to, to look at one of those, and work through one of those, and study, and be amazed at what all that God has revealed in Scripture to us. And I challenge you to set your mind up the things that are true, the things that are honorable, and just, and pure, and lovely, and holy, and excellent. Set your mind on them and practice them, so that in uh, the day-to-day rhythms and the monotony of life, like Pastor Randy's been talking about, we can still keep our mind focused on God and we can worship Him and be pleasing to Him. Finally, when you have a solid grasp on the revelation that God has laid out for us, it should bring about growth and maturity. You don't have to live a life that's being tossed by the waves and led astray by doctrines of human cunningness and deceitfulness. You can be grounded and built up in maturity. Paul prayed for this for the Colossians. He says, so as to walk worthy, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. We are to be growing in our knowledge of God through our walk with Him. Now, if you're here today and you're hearing all this about the existence and the knowability of God, maybe you can see the, the benefits of it. Maybe it's just head knowledge alone. Or if you're sitting here and maybe know, in fact, that you do not have a relationship with God. Let me tell you that it is possible to be freed from the clutches of sin, to be able to light, to delight in that true knowledge of God. All those blessings we talked about were for believers who have put their faith and their trust in the finished work of Christ. God is the only one who can free you from the blindness that keeps you from seeing the light of the gospel. Not only have you seen the truth in God's existence and creation, but you've heard the truth this very hour. You have no excuse. So don't wait. Find someone to talk to and, and come to delight in the infinite God who has sent his son to live a perfect life and took the punishment that you deserve so that you could live a life of righteousness. Ephesians 2 says that you were dead in your trespasses and sin. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love for which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. 
we have this revelation of God all around us. Let's rejoice in him. Let's pray. Oh, great, heavenly, mighty Father, we thank you so much that you have revealed yourself to us so clearly, so plainly, not only in creation, but more fully in your scripture and through your Son. I pray, Lord, that we would grow in our understanding and knowledge of you, Lord, so that we might walk humbly before you. We might delight as we study your word. And Lord, as a church, that we would grow up in maturity, fully pleasing you. Lord, I pray that this would be um, just beneficial for this church, Lord, that, and it would bring you glory and honor. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.